Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Get in the Herd. My name is Nathan Mitchell, and I am the Community Outreach and Advocacy Coordinator with the McShin Recovery Resource Foundation here in Henrico County, uh, Virginia. And I have today as our very special guest, um, the delegate who represents the 72nd District, Skylar Van Valkenburg. The 72nd District here in Virginia incorporate in, encompasses Hatcher Memorial Baptist Church and several of the houses um, that are a part of the McShin Foundation. So uh, welcome, Skylar. I've also got here as a co-host, um, Harrison uh, Thrift, hey. who, uh, hey, <laughs> Harrison's been with me down at the General Assembly during the session, um, I brought Skylar on to talk about reconvene, which occurred yesterday, to talk about some legislation that's passed that will benefit um, and what else we can continue to do and also about the budget. So with that, I'm going to introduce you and say, hey, Skylar, and let you uh, introduce yourself. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks for doing this. Um, my name is Skylar Van Valkenburg. I am, uh, this is my second term in the House of Delegates representing uh, about half of Western Henrico. My day job is I'm a teacher for Henrico County. I teach a high school uh, government class. <clears throat> and so it's uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to serve for these last three years. And, uh, you know, we had reconvene session yesterday, and it's uh, a crazy world we live in in this moment, and we'll get into all of that. But that's who I am. I have three kids, uh, live near ha uh, Hatcher Baptist Church in Lakeside, and uh, we've, we've got one of the best communities, I think, around. So ready to rock when you are. Hey, that's great. Well, thank thank you again. And and before we get into all the political stuff and and, and everything, I I know that you just mentioned you have three kids at home and a dog, uh, Baxter. And we yeah. just heard a little bit in the background. Um, how are you personally coping with um, all of this nonsense? I know you're a school teacher, so you're not in school. How are your students coping? How are you personally affected? Yeah, yeah. I, it's you know, it's it's it, it's interesting. I have two full time jobs that typically demand being around a lot of people all the time. Uh, I love that about my two jobs. Uh, and it's, you know, both of those jobs are now mostly, you know, not right They're They're open, they're online. And uh, it's been, it's been weird getting used to it. You know, kids are, kids are super resilient. So my kids have, have really done, done well and, and are just rocking and rolling. Uh, and it's been more me who's had to get used to it. Uh, and and try to figure out how can you teach effectively and how can you be an effective legislator and, and represent your community. But, you know, I can't complain in the scheme of things. We're doing well. And it's, it's you know, a lot of people in our community who have been hard hit. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, thanks to all the people who are on the front lines. You know, our community has been one of the harder hit communities in Virginia. Uh, you know, we have the Canterbury Recovery Center, Center that's lost about 50 people. Uh, we have two other long-term facilities who have uh, a lot of positive cases of COVID. And so we've got a lot of uh, people who are doing a lot of work to make sure that people are safe in those communities, but also just kind of throughout the county. And so uh, they are the true heroes in this moment, and they're, you know, they're doing a great job. And that's one of the reasons why I've been so adamant that we have to continue to, to do the things the governor has laid out and others have laid out about social distancing, because we're seeing it in our community. In places where you know we saw it in the the Bonaire juvenile facility, uh, yeah. where a third of their kids have tested positive. We're seeing people that are in these close quarters in Henrico and Chesterfield and Richmond area are it's spreading, and so it's it's scary. It is scary, and it's. I'm glad you brought up Bonaire because that that brings up the broader uh, movement towards decarceration that the governor has started um, with Secretary Moran, and uh, we were talking about that with Shannon Taylor yesterday, and. 
I believe it's a 17% decrease in the popular incarcerated population that we're seeing right now, which, you know, on, on the face of it, as a person who doesn't believe that incarceration is the best way of handling situations, especially substance use disorder, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see that. Um, what, what makes me a little nervous is that uh, we're not seeing transition plans and giving, making sure that we have housing and accommodations for people once they get out of the incarceration. So, you know, as a, as a facility that handles a population coming, you know, uh, reintegration into society, you know, we're looking at making sure that we can meet those challenges. And one of those ways we need to meet that challenge is making sure that we have the funding available. And we, we, we had a, an exciting two months um, where, you know, this the blue wave came through. You know, you were part of the 2018 beginning of that wave uh, or the 2017 beginning of that wave and the 2019 continuation of that. And that's it's, it's great because it's meant opening up, you know, new possibilities. Um, and now we're at this budget crisis, you know, two months after the fact. So what's what's going on with the budget? Let's let's yeah. go start with that. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, the big the big the big question, right? Uh, you know, we did we passed. Uh, I think the, kind of the, the the backdrop to that is we passed. Uh, I think a, a really solid budget not even two months ago uh, that invested in education, invested in healthcare, invested in a lot of areas that uh, you know I feel that we've neglected for the last decade. Uh, and I've been, you know, one of the things that's really got me worried is, you know, one of the reasons I got into the race originally in 2017 was that um, I thought the state had badly handled the Great Recession 10 years ago. And I'm really nervous about us doing so again. And so anyway, we passed, a, a, I think, a, a historic budget, a great budget, and almost instantaneously COVID hit. And it, it is undeniably going to change what that budget looks like it's going to have to i mean we've, i mean this is going to be worse than the great recession i think um i think it's going to be longer lasting in some ways and what we did yesterday in the reconvene session is we essentially hit pause on all that new spending so the reconvene session to the backdrop for people who, who don't know the reconvene session is uh, a month after session ends roughly well a month and a half after session ends we vote on governor's vetoes and governor's recommendations uh, Unlike the federal level, uh, where a president can just veto a bill or sign it, uh, at the state level, the governor can also send down recommendations to change the bill. And so that's essentially what happened yesterday. He didn't have a lot of vetoes. There was only one bill he vetoed, uh, which makes sense. It's a Democratic legislature and it's a Democratic governor. Uh, you know, we worked in sync. Um, in previous years, there had been more vetoes under a Republican-led legislature. Uh, but there was a lot of recommendations. And, and the reason for that largely was because of this COVID crisis. And so in the budget, the, the recommendations in the budget, many of them, not all of them, but many of them were COVID related and it was to pause new spending. And so uh, we went along with all of that in the short term because the reality is we just, we need liquidity. We need money for the crisis, right? We need money for the immediate response to COVID. And we also don't know what the economy is going to look like. We don't have a, we don't have, we don't have data. We don't have facts. We don't know. And so we put a pause on that new spending and what is most likely going to happen is we will meet as a general assembly in a special session that the governor will call probably at the end of August, early September. And what we'll do then at that point is we'll have a new economic forecast. And once we have that new economic forecast, we'll know how, we'll know what, how many dollars we have to spend essentially. And at that point, We'll make decisions on spending, all the spending that we had included in this budget that we had just passed. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways that can go. Um, 
And, you know, on the one hand, we can get that new data, we can leave the kind of the revenues as is and cut down, right, which means some, some of that new spending we put in will stay, some of that new spending will go, or in a worst case scenario, if the revenues go down even further than we anticipate, we would have to cut old spending as well. Um, we can come together and, and I think the way we need to do is have a balanced approach. Um, you know, we could say, okay, the revenues are this, how can we get revenues up, right? So that, well, yeah, we probably do have to cut some spending. We don't have to cut it to the bone, uh, which is what we had done 10 years ago. And so there's a lot really in the air with the budget, but the kind of short, the short data points are, we passed a budget, it had a lot of good things in it. Most of them are on pause. And in a couple of months, when we know more, we're going to come back and, and we're going to deal with it. Um, and I hope we deal with it in a more productive way that, that you know, I, I would argue we put it on the backs of the public education system. We put it on the backs of workers. We put it on the back of poor folks 10 years ago. And I think that set our state back a decade. And so I, I hope we don't do that again. Well, and I think um, if you're if if you've been watching, you know, random Facebook comments all over the all over the Internet in the last few months, um, you can see that uh, teachers are getting uh, the credit they finally deserve. I come from a family of a lot of teachers, so I, I have a great appreciation for what they what teachers do and, and for the for the funding that isn't usually available for teachers. So I think you're seeing memes where people are saying Get these people a billion dollars a day. Um, I know that we, you know, want to see that restored in the budget. Um, some things that we're realizing, you know, McShin, right? For instance, you know, we've been we've been labeled an essential, you know, service provider. Right. So here we are daily, still at Hatcher, still taking people in, you know, coming off the streets and coming from the jails as there be as the decarceration, you know, effect is sort of coming at a wave at us uh, right now. Um, you know, ensuring that we are able to provide all essential service providers with the necessary funding to move forward is something that we're, you know, strongly advocating for because it's easy for people, with, you know, we, we face that stigma of addiction, that substance use disorder stigma. And I think that there's a, a potential for us to get lost in the mix here, which is why I'm reaching out to you, which is why I've been reaching out to Shannon and, and uh, folks on all sides of the aisles, you know, McShin is a purple organization. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think I, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm looking forward to, you know, the, the next couple months and seeing where we go with the budget. I know that this is, you know, going to be drastic changes, um, but we need we still need help. And we're seeing an increase in calls. So we're, we're begging for help. Well, <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I, I'll jump in right there. I think there's a couple of things, too. You know, one is going to depend on the federal response. Right? Yeah. What do the Fed yeah. send down? Uh, and, you know, one thing that they've already done is boost their, uh, their Medicaid payments, for instance, right, which has helped the states. Uh, one thing that we've done in the short term is we've boosted our, our Medicaid and Medicare payment to nursing homes, uh, $20 per day per person, uh, which was in response to the fact that places like Canterbury, uh, they have workers that have to work at two or three facilities to make a living, Right. And uh, that was causing huge, I mean, that causes problems in a, in a good time, let alone in a crisis. Yeah. Like this. Uh, and so that was one thing we did yesterday was to boost that payment $20 per day per person, hopefully to get more money in the pockets of those healthcare workers to, to make sure that we have the workers necessary. And so I would encourage y'all, especially as we kind of go through these next couple of months to see, you know, where you see weaknesses in the system um, when it comes to this issue, because you're, you're exactly right. 
you know, it, your, your services are going to become more necessary, not less necessary. Um, where we see stuff like that, where the state can play a role uh, and, and to get back to us, you know, because I think I do think that that Medicaid payment, for instance, is a good example of us as a legislature kind of in the governor pragmatically looking at what's a short term thing that we can do. And, and I, I actually hope it lasts because these facilities, you should be able to work at one facility and, and make a living wage and not have to go to two or three. Um, sure. And so, you know. Stuff like that, I think, is a place where, as a, as, a, as a state, we can we can kind of make targeted investments in this crisis. So I would encourage you all to to be looking at those places where you think we can be most effective. And we have applied, you know, with the the small business administration has done, um, you know, uh, funding for nonprofits. I know that we've, you know, reached out and we're looking at the federal ways um, to 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 make up our deficits here. Um, a couple of things now that that did go through this legislature that are really exciting to me personally, and Harrison was part of this. Is why one of the reasons I'm I'm here is that um, the Chesterfield Recovery High School that got passed um, by Carrie Coiner, uh, Republican. Um, I forget where she lives. She lives in Chesterfield, I imagine. Uh, where is she? She's in Chesterfield. Jessica, yeah, um, she she got that passed, but that's another one of those budget items that got that got put on hold until next, you know, until the next uh, emergency session comes in. So, uh, you know, we, we're seeing that already play out a little bit and putting things on the back burner for that. But we did see some uh, wins that, that are going to go into immediate effect. I think um, uh, the driver's license bill, you know, people who don't are are. are People are not going to have their licenses suspended simply because they haven't paid their fines, their court fines and fees. That was an exciting um, for many of us because it affects what something like six hundred thousand people affected last year when the when the um, the budget amendment went through. Yep, that, that was exciting, and thank you for that. Um, you personally have had some things going through the. You've had an exciting uh, year. Um, good and bad, I think. Right? Um, I know your issues are more <laughs> like Toro. You're you, actually. You know, aside from the recovery stuff that I work on, I'm fascinated by the things that you're fascinated by. You know, uh, the, the way that elections happen. I really love that stuff. So um, I really want to nerd out with you at some point on that stuff. So but tell me, yeah. tell me, tell me what, what you've been doing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, me personally, I worked on kind of two big picture areas this year. Um, one was uh, and I had some bills that were outside of that, but two big areas. One was. Uh, school safety issues where um, it had been a two-year project that had come out of a committee that the previous speaker, Kirk Cox, had created after Parkland on school safety. And myself, Jeff Bourne from Richmond City and Mike Mullen from Williamsburg had really kind of led the way on the Democratic side of putting forward this kind of broad swath of policy uh, of what we thought would make schools safer. And, and the basic argument was the way you make schools safe is you, is you look at this wide range of policy. Um, so, you know, you, it's counselors, it's uh, gun violence prevention, it's school resource officers, it's communication between the school system and parents. It's, it's not one thing, it's a lot of things. And this year, um, we, we got, we, we pretty much finished our agenda that we had laid out two years ago, which was really exciting. You know, the gun violence prevention stuff passed because we had a Democratic majority. Uh, so we got that through and, and that was not me that led the way on that. Um, but but others like Jeff did. Uh, my kind of specific piece that I had been working on and over the last two years were school resource officers, which are your police officers in schools. 
And to that end, I carried um, two bills and helped push along a third bill um, that were continuation over bills over a couple of years. And so that was uh, memorandums of understanding between law enforcement and, um, and school systems, right, to make sure that law enforcement's in charge of safety and that um, schools are in charge of discipline. And memorandums of understanding set the guidelines for the relationship. And, and previous to so two years ago, and then this year we fine-tuned it, uh, they, they didn't really have to do MOUs and they didn't have to be frequently refreshed. And, and the reason why having to be frequently refreshed is really important is if you think of something like vaping, mm-hmm. you know, two years ago that wasn't a thing and now it is. And, you know, if you're vaping and it's, it's nicotine, that's a school discipline problem. If you're vaping and it's marijuana, now you're into a law enforcement issue, right? Um, or, uh, you know, cell phones, iPhones, they're not, not around five years ago. Now they are, right? A lot of iPhone issues are school discipline, but some of them are not. And so working that out, that was one bill. A second was getting data on what school resource officers are doing so that we don't, which we don't have so that we can make effective MOUs. Uh, and then a third, which I didn't carry, but it, but it really promoted and helped along was um, training for school resource officers. They themselves have been crying out for it. They're trained as police officers. They don't know, um, they don't, they don't know child growth. They don't know what the difference between a fifth grader and an eighth grader are mentally, right? They don't understand what, they're not trained on um, uh, disability, schools, students with disabilities. They're not trained on any of this stuff. And so they, had, they wanted the training. Um, there was a survey, they wanted the training. And so we, we got the training. So that was one space. And then the second space and really the biggest one this year um, was voting, which is something I am very passionate about. I carried the redistricting amendment uh, that voters will vote on in November to try to end gerrymandering, uh, which did get pretty controversial at the end of session uh, on my side of the aisle. Uh, I'm a Democrat. And, um, you know, my version of the amendment did not pass, but the amendment passed, and that's all I care about. Uh, and so voters will vote on that in November. And I carried all the, uh, the legislation surrounding that. Uh, and then also I'm the, I'm the subcommittee chair of the elections committee uh, of of the election subcommittee. So all election law came through that. And I carried some from me. I carried a bill on mail voting, which passed yesterday in the reconvened session uh, that would allow you to be a permanent mail voter. Uh, and we opened up no excuse absentee voting. We made elections uh, a holiday, election day a holiday. Uh, we got rid of the voter ID law. Uh, we did a whole lot of things around elections to, to, to make voting more accessible. We had been ranked 49th out of 50 states for voter accessibility two years ago. And so um, that changing was really the, the, the biggest thing for me. But I, I care a lot about elections and fair elections. And so that was that was really my big push this year. I did some other stuff, which I'll just do. You know, I did a, a bill that I've been trying to get passed for a couple of years, banning non-competes for low-wage workers. So you work at a, you're a hairstylist or you work at a nail salon or you work at McDonald's. Uh, increasingly, these workers were getting non-compete clauses slapped on them, which, you know, so the, the real famous example is Jimmy John's, where Jimmy John's in the Chicago area were slapping non-competes on. You couldn't work at another place that made sandwiches for three years, uh, which meant that if you work Jimmy John's in Chicago, you couldn't work at any other restaurant or fast food place in the city for three years because of the way that the it was written. Um uh, and, you know, there's examples of like the, the woman who was a hairstylist in the West Broad Village who couldn't work at another uh, salon um, within the whole Richmond area. 
And so that's uh, bad for workers. It's bad for because workers typically, low wage workers typically get better wages when they move to a different job. It's also bad for entrepreneurship. You're a hairstylist, you started a salon, and then you want to go start your own, right? You're, you're working at the hair salon in Short Pump, and you say, you know what? I live in Lakeside. I want Lakeside to have a sweet hair salon. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that, all right? You know, you work at the Starbucks, and you, you know, Lakeside needs a, needs a coffee shop. I'm going to open one up. Uh, and you can't because you got to non compete. And so banning those for low wage workers was, uh, I was really excited about that law passing this year because I think it's just, it's just, it's, it's the right thing to do. It's good policy. It's a win for capitalism. It's a win for workers. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's a snapshot of what I did. I'm, I'm, I'm talking for a long time now. So I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> there. Uh, there, there were several things that happened, and, and the one thing I haven't mentioned yet um, is Senate Bill 667 that was carried by um, by Senator Boisco up in, uh, um, where is she, up in Loudoun I think. Um, yeah. Is that Baxter back there? <laughs> what, what kind of dog is Baxter? He's a, a Pitbull Mastiff mix, so he's 80 oh. pounds of muscle. <laughs> All right. Um, Senate Bill 667. Uh, Senate Bill 667 is a, an enhanced uh, um, Good Samaritan law. Uh-huh. And this, this allows for um, this, this allows individuals who are, you know, suffering a substance use related emergency, often an overdose, to get the help that they need. Um, and encourages people to call in an emergency without the risk of being arrested. The current law, um, as it is right now, allows for individuals to have an affirmative defense. They still have to go through. They still have to go through a lot of legal hoops before they can be, you know, not charged or at least have the charges dismissed um, if they're helping another individual in an overdose crisis. This um, bill is a step forward in in making it. Uh, known that Virginia wants to help people who are suffering with a health issue um, instead of putting people in jail. It's another step, you know, towards actually getting people health uh, solutions to a healthcare crisis. Um, that was an exciting step that that was made this year. And I know that you voted for that. And thank you. Um, some other things that uh, some that have happened really big one. Uh, um, little marijuana decriminalization. How about yeah. that? You mentioned that with yeah. the vaping. Uh, that's a that's a big step in Virginia. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we've really um, we've really been traditionally uh, a very uh, tough on crime state, in a, in a way that I think is very counter counterproductive. Uh, well, creating crime where there shouldn't be a crime created. Right. I think. Oh, right. You're making something a crime that shouldn't be a crime. <laughs> well, and I, and you know, I, and the decrim bill is a, is a good bill. It is, a, it is a good bill. It's gonna. It's, it's the right thing to do. Uh, I, I, personally, I would have gone farther. The civil penalty, I think, is it wasn't necessary. But I think this is this is it's it's a good bill. It gets us on the right step. I think you know Attorney General uh, Herring really he, he kind of got the ball rolling on this in many ways when he put out that op-ed. Uh, I don't remember when it was. It was before session, maybe November, December where he kind of laid out the steps about what we should do. You know, step one should be decriminalization. Step two, we should look at expungement and we should look at, we should study legalization. Step three, right, is, is, a, is a full legalization. And I, I, I think the decrim bill does a good job of that. Yesterday in reconvene, um, we voted on two governor's amendments. One of them would have um, taken away the ability to get a, a, a jury trial with that civil penalty, which we, we, both the House and Senate, stripped out. 
And the second one uh, was to delay the study for legalization for uh, a year from 2020 to 2021. Uh, and that was stripped out as well. Uh, and the rationale behind stripping that out was that um, the, the General Assembly already has a study that's going to be done next year. Let's get both of these studies done and let's start looking at what it is, right? I, I think the governor was a little is a little hesitant about legalized marijuana. And to put my cards on the table, I am too. I think I'm I'm for doing it, but doing it in, in the right way. And and I have worries around around kids in schools. Uh, yeah. But but um, getting those studies done and starting the process of thinking about it, I think are, are also, um, along with the decrim bills are also a really important step forwards as well. So I think the decrim is, a, is good, but so are the fact that those studies are gonna be done and we're gonna be able to look at a world and, and what does legalized marijuana mean in Virginia. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is very important. Um, Harrison, any questions for the delegate? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I heard a little bit about the changes to uh, voting laws, and I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the uh, changes to the required identification. Sure. Um, yeah. what, what exactly was the change there? So it basically takes us back to where we were before that law passed. And that law passed, the voter ID law passed in uh, 2000, and I believe it was nine, maybe 2010. I was in the McDonald administration. Uh, and what, what the law was before is you either show an ID or you sign an affidavit claiming that you are who you are. And mm -hmm. so under threat of a felony charge. Mm -hmm. So it basically takes us back to that. And, and the reason why that's important is we know that it's, tr it's traditionally people in urban areas, poor urban areas, predominantly minority voters who, who don't have an ID. And I know to a lot of people that the idea that you don't have an ID sounds crazy. Um, but a lot of people don't have access. And a lot of people, you know, to, to get one and to take work off or, or where the DMV is uh, and the affidavit power is still pretty strong. You're, you're signing that you're legally doing this under the threat of a felony charge. And so it takes us, the bill basically just takes it, it takes us back to where we were um, okay. in 2009 uh, and strips out the legal requirement that it has to be an ID. Right. So if I was going to vote and I did not have an ID, I would have to sign an affidavit? Correct. That's the process? If you do have it, you do still have to present it? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. And, and we broadened out what the IDs are. Um, our, you know, our IDs were, uh, our IDs were, um, I would argue, um, what's the word? Arbitrary. Uh, so, for instance, there was a bill that Rip Sullivan, who's from, um, I think he was in Alexandria, uh, has put forward for a couple of years that finally passed where you could use an in-state college ID, but you can't use an out-of-state college ID. So. Yeah you're a Northern Virginia student and you go to Georgetown, you can't use that ID. Right. <laughs> if you're a Northern Virginia student and you, go, and you go to George Mason, you can use that ID. Uh, so we, we, we slightly broadened out as well kind of what IDs are acceptable, which I think was also the right move. You know, our state has, is not as bad as some other ones on that, on that, in, in, in that area. Uh, so, for instance, like in Texas, it used to be that you could use your concealed carry ID, but you couldn't use a college ID at all. Uh, and Virginia is Virginia is not, not not really that bad, but we we had some places. Gotcha. So, I guess on the surface, for me, my innate kind of reaction is to think, well, this opens up a door for potential fraud. Sure. Uh, is there any investigation into those who do not? provide an ID, you know, otherwise is it just signing a piece of paper and that piece of paper is just filed away? Or is there any kind of validation? 
that these people are actually American citizens? Well, you can't, I mean, yeah, I mean, because you can't, so you can't, you can't even get to that affidavit process before you check the, before you're checked the rolls to be registered to vote, right? So you still have to go through the voter registration. Okay. You still have to go through that process. Um, okay. So all of that's still into effect. You know, I, I'll be very honest with you. I don't know the specific details about how, how, um, how robust the kind of back end look on those are. Uh, Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a process for going back and, and checking voter rolls and all of that stuff. There's a process for how they go back and I'm, I'm blanking on the word of the survey, the, the machine and all of that jazz. Uh, gotcha. But no, there's and, and there's also the threat of a felony charge, too. Um, sure. You know, when I go back to 2009. Uh, Virginia didn't have a didn't have a fraud problem in voting. And, and I, states that have that typically don't don't as well. So. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you for clarifying that for me. Yeah, and if we're looking at um, increasing mail-in options, um, we're essentially that that would be an affidavit itself, wouldn't it? I mean, you don't so, have to. Yeah. So I, I've become uh, quite the convert over the years to mail voting, and one of the <laughs> one of the interesting conversations around that is the security is the security question, right? Right. Because uh, similar questions come up at first about the security of a mail voting, and it's really. Uh, and there too, the security on mail voting is 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 pretty is pretty pretty awesome in some ways. What what they're cap- what you're capable of doing and, wh- and why they are secure. So, for instance, um, registrars really like mail voting in that when you send that mail ballot out, um, if 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 it doesn't register with the voter, it gets pinged back. They can keep the voting rolls fresher. Right. Because you it has to be verified that you're getting the when they when they mail it out. Um, also, uh, tra- you can track your vote states that have mail voting. You can track your vote as the as the voter. So you can you can follow your ballot the entire process. So a lot of states. Have, cool. <laughs> yeah. So following. Right. So you, you mail your ballot back in. It's kind of like your Amazon purchase, right? Where you follow your Amazon purchase through each step, and like it, like yesterday, it ended with like Amazon taking a picture of the uh, the book they sent me on my porch, right? Where yeah. you can the whole step of the way. So you know, if you find out that your ballot was um, rejected because of your signature didn't match, right? Well, if you've mailed it in ahead of time, you can see that in the tracking, and you can go reconcile that. Mm. Uh, so there's that are in place. Yeah. Um, we do have a couple questions up here. Um, Kelly, Kelly Widow says, has there been any talk about increasing drug awareness in schools, such as educating kids on fentanyl? Um, yeah, any thoughts on that? That's a good question. Um, and at the state level, I'll be honest, the answer has been no. Um, not in a, not in a very serious way. You know, when the state starts talking about curriculum and and, and, and the kind of what all the broad field of family life, typically what you end up seeing is a lot of bills around um, kind of social issues, kind of culture war issues. And you see less around stuff like this. Um, and, you know, I don't really know the reason for that. I don't know if it's a I, I mean, I, I do know why people put those bills in around the culture war issues. I mean, it's, you know. It's, it's things they fervently believe in or it's political. Uh, 
And I don't, I don't really know the answer for why there isn't more attempt at the state level to inject that into the curriculum. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a, a legislator problem. I don't know if interest groups haven't been very active in that field. Uh, but some of this is also a locality issue too, right? This kind of blends the world of, of, of state and local because local governments can also go out there and do that. And we also have, we've seen local governments that have been very kind of, uh, what's the nice way of putting it? Local governments kind of, they get afraid of talking about it. You know, they get afraid of, they get afraid of the parent calls or they get afraid of, um, you know, the, the, uh, the liability in, in some scenarios. And so, uh, you know, not as much as we should is the, is the answer. Um, and in terms of the, the state, really, the, the role the state can play is curriculum on this, right? Mm-hmm. Educate people through the curriculum. That's, that's where we kind of come in here. And if you're talking more about people coming into the schools to talk about it, or you're talking about kind of clubs in schools, which I've talked to John about in the past, that's really a local issue. And that's where it's a school board issue. Sure. And I I think the word we're looking for is stigma. Um, As the stigma of addiction continues to be centered around um, making people criminals for having a public health issue, for having a health care problem, that stigma boils down to not wanting to talk about that. You know, you shouldn't be able to you shouldn't do this. And since you do this, you're an awful person, Um, which prevents people from getting help. I know that when I go out and I speak to high school students and, and I did not like doing this at first um, because I thought, what am I going to do with these kids? And I now I actually love it because um, <laughs> I can share what, well, you know, I, 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 I know where my, you know, I'm a, anybody who's watching probably already knows this. I'm a person in recovery from substance use disorder. And, you know, I just have a little over two years, you know, free, free from drugs and alcohol. Not a long time, actually, in the scheme of my using. And I used for a long time since I was a kid. And I had some successes in a career. So I I, I didn't know that recovery was available. I just knew that I didn't like who I was personally. It's a self-esteem. It's a feelings disease, right? This is a mental health issue um, that is, I mean, it's classified as a mental health issue. And it's not being addressed, you know, in an effective manner. And we just kind of say, well, don't do this. No, no, no. And instead of saying, well, hold on, if you do get stuck in this, you know, this is, these are, this is how you can prevent this, you know, effectively prevent this, or this is how, if you do get stuck in this, this is how you can work your way out of it. And when I have that ability and I can do that and I can have those conversations, I'm happy. You know, I can go and talk, but. um, Well, to that point, I mean, and to that point, you know, I, I, I would, I, over the years, every time I've gone to McShinna, I, I constant—I feel like a broken record when I say this, but every time I go, I see a former new, a new former student. Yeah. And so kids know, kids know, right? Kids are aware of the, of the problem. And I think that was one of the kind of good things about Carrie's bill. And, you know, hopefully we do end up finding funding for that school because hopefully that school can help be part of the solution that, to that issue of breaking down stigma, as you mentioned, yeah. you know, um, cause kid, I mean, you, you know, you, kids, you, you probably like going to school cause you can, you understand that kids, the kids are learning from it. Right. And kids, kids are, kids are understanding what you're saying and kids, kids want to hear that message. Right. They, they want to, they, they don't well, want to yeah. see themselves or their friends addicted. They don't want to see their friends addicted. And the thing is, is when, you know, I, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm a felon. I'm a felon because of a possession charge in Virginia. And what that means is, is that, you know, I had a, an illegal substance on me when I was arrested. Um, 
And because, you know, getting off of drugs and alcohol is not necessarily a, you know, straight, you know, one day you're doing, you know, you're, you're using and the next day you're not, you know, I continued to use in, before I went to trial and I messed up and I threw away the first offenders law now. And I bring that up because, you know, some people will say, well, there's a first offenders law. Well, yes, but if you're in pretrial and you continue to use and you're not actually getting any help at that time, you know, or not thinking about recovery because you don't know what recovery is. And all you know is that you're a felon. <laughs> um, and now, you know, I'm facing actual real prison time in Virginia. Um, a schedule one, schedule two narcotics possession charge is up to 10 years in prison. It's a felony charge with up to 10 years in prison, yeah. uh, which is insane to me because as a felon now I cannot vote. Right. You know, we talk about all this election law and I think it's phenomenal and it's inter interesting as heck to me. And and now I can't even do it. And I got to wait. Well, you know, well, hopefully, um, hopefully change that, you know, because uh, to that point, uh, you know, Governor McAuliffe started that ball in Virginia, mm -hmm. that ball rolling and did really did the Lord's work on that. And, you know, next year is a year, next session, I should say, next session, um, we can put forward a constitutional amendment for the first time on that issue to change. Oh, maybe Locke has been doing that for years, actually. Well, now we got the votes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we'll have an election and then mm -hmm. we have to come back and vote for it again, you know, because in Virginia, you got to vote for a constitutional amendment once. You got to have an election. The General Assembly has to vote again. And then it would go to the voters. And as we saw in Florida, was that, I think it was last year, right? As yep. we saw in Florida, there was an overwhelming bipartisan vote to restore rights because we should restore rights. It's the right thing to do. You're a citizen. You should have a say in how the government works. And so um, I'm very hopeful that we, that we will change that because it's, it's the right thing to do. And I that and I I'm glad that you support that. It's one important piece I think is is to the restoration of rights afterwards, and and, and that's all rights. You know, I yeah. still have other things I'm going to have to fight for. Um, I am a big proponent of defelonizing, uh, defelonizing possession. You know, I, I don't, you know, the way it's handled across the country is completely different everywhere you go. And in fact, in D.C., you know, Schedule One or Schedule Two up to a, a lot, I don't know what the amount is exactly, is still a misdemeanor with only up to 180 days in jail um, and a $1,000 fine and or a $1,000 fine. Um, whereas you have 10 years for the same effect, you know, as a felon in Virginia. So, you know, getting in line with what the rest of the country is doing and making sure that we're treating um, a public health care crisis as a public health care crisis, because you, you may or may not know this, but the numbers of people in jail with a severe mental health issue, it's over 50 percent with a substance use disorder. You know, I think the average is somewhere around 85 percent and some places in Virginia over 92 or three or four or five percent. It's astronomical. The numbers of people who are, who are dealing with a health care crisis you know, situation who are in jail and not having access you know right now. We're seeing that, you know, as we're releasing waves of people right now. And I'm for that in theory, as long as we have somewhere for people to go. We need transition. We need help. Um, I don't know exactly what my question there is. <laughs> Other than do you support defelonization, I guess, is the, uh, the right, right question. You know, uh, it's, a, I, it's a tricky. I will, I will be very honest up and upfront with you in that this is not my field of expertise uh, when, when it comes to the kind of legal code around imprisoning. I will say that my general... Um, my general philosophy, if you will, is as I think that Virginia has been in way, has been 
has been way too law and order focused at the expense of helping people for mm -hmm. decades and that we need to unwind that. Um, I, I'm sure the answer to your question is yes, in some form. <laughs> I just, I, I just, I'll, I'll, but I, I, I don't know what the other states look like, right? Which is why I hesitate to give you a fully fleshed out answer. I, I kind of like to see where the other states are and to see what the trends are before I give a fleshed out policy view, you know? So right. I, I don't think that we should be imprisoning people who are addicts. Like that, just like that is a blanket statement that, I, that I'm that i willing to make, right? I don't think that we should be doing that. I think we should be getting people the help they need. Um, what the intricacies of the legal code look like and how that functions. I, I, I rely on others to give me the expertise. Well, that's good. And I, I, I know John has been, uh, you know, really pushing, you know, the Portugal model um, and I, the, or the Portugal flip, you know, here for the United States. And the, um, we're seeing this a little bit in Seattle, uh, Washington State and Seattle. We're seeing uh, this trend towards actually getting people to help, you know, and to the help they need instead of immediately putting people into jail. And we're seeing people get better. You know, Portugal's had this, how oh, John, you, you know, John, he'll he'll talk your ear off about this. And and uh, I need to learn more about this myself. But the Portugal model, you know, essentially decriminalized everything, you know, and, I, and, and instead of putting people in jails, you know, giving people access, you know, right away. Um, and what we've seen is the number of overdoses dropping dramatically. We've seen the numbers of people just on the streets, you know, in addiction dropping dramatically. And we're seeing people get help. Yes. And of course, the numbers of people incarcerated, you know, dropping dramatically. Um, that's what I'd like to see. Well, you know, I, I lived in Seattle very briefly um, a long time ago now. And um, one, thing I, one thing I will note about my experience there is that they do a really good job, or they did, I, I, in, when I was there, uh, they, do, they did a really good job of being, working on the front end of the mental health problem. They did a, they, of getting people to see doctors, of getting people housing, right? right. So that they weren't homeless, of making, of get, helping them get, get a job, helping, right? They did a great job on the front end so that you didn't, right? So that people weren't going to jail because they were, they were, if, if they had, if they had to be on medication, they got medication, right? They, they could, they had stable housing uh, that, you know, Virginia doesn't do a great job on housing, right? Um, and so they were very proactive, which is uh, how we should be on everything, right? Not just this issue, but just in general. I mean, I think, right, we should be proactive in education. We should be proactive on mental health. You know, uh, that's one of the big reasons, for instance, I, uh, the pre-K program that the governor and the first lady pushed is so important. I mean, right, if you're proactive and you educate kids when they're two, three, four, and five, right, and get them a solid education in the beginning, not only are you helping families, right, and people who work, but you're helping kids get a better education so that when they go out into the real world, they've got the skills they need. So, I mean, I think in all these, all these places, the more proactive we can be and the more we can make sure the supports are there that people need. And that's just, that, that to me is common sense. Yeah. Excellent. Um, any, any questions? No, not the moment. <laughs> Todd, you've been quiet over there. My producer, Todd over here. Any, any thoughts, questions? I, I see a few comments. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have a few comments. Uh, <clears throat> come on. 
from Kim, uh, or Kim had said, you know, jail is not the answer for those suffering with substance use disorder. I do support decriminalization of substance use or war on drugs is, is uh, our war on drugs has not and does not work. And, you know, uh, yes, the Portugal model has worked. So you have, uh, and then Emily also commented saying so far so good. So, you know, uh, so you do have a couple comments coming in here. Um, but no, that's, you know, it's everything on my end. I had my mi microphone down, so I wasn't, you know, oh. chewing gum into the mic. So. <laughs> thank, thank you for that. <laughs> um, Skylar, I have uh, one more question for you. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and this is a question I'm asking everybody as they come through. Um, important to recovery for me, recovery from substance use disorder is an attitude of gratitude, you know, making sure that I find gratitude in my life um, because they say that a grateful addict doesn't use. So what I'm going to ask you now is what are you grateful for today? Cool. That's a great question. <laughs> what am I grateful for today? You know, I want to give a special shout out to all of the people that made the reconvene session work yesterday, both for the mm -hmm. House and Senate. You know, um, there was a lot of people, you know, a lot of people will see the news about the votes we took and us being there and, and us being in masks. Uh, but, you know, there was dozens of police officers there to protect us. There was the janitorial staff. There was the clerk staff for both houses that got it together and organized it. And, you know, all these people uh, work really hard and we're just as at risk as us, right, of spreading, spreading COVID. And so I think they deserve a special shout out because what they did uh, to, to prepare us and to make it so that we had a successful day uh, uh, is really commendable and, and it really shows just how awesome they are. So I'm especially grateful to them, you know, as in light of what we went through yesterday. Uh, and I'm also grateful. I'm really grateful to all of the first responders right now and healthcare people. I mean, you know, I said it at the beginning, but it, it, in Henrico, we've been particularly hard and seen the kind of tragedy up close. And we've got a lot of people who are putting in the work to ensure that there's less suffering, uh, less people are getting sick. And they're busting their tail for our community, and so uh, I want to give a shout out to them too. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to them. And and you know, last time I'm grateful to our community. I I think you know we've got an amazing community. I think it's one of the real beautiful things about just the entire region, right? Not just in Rico, but Richmond, Chesterfield. I think people pull together. And um, I you know I walking in lakeside or going to a local restaurant people have smiles on their face they're waving they're trying to make the best out of a bad thing and i you know uh that 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 makes me have that makes me very thankful as well uh it helps helps me keep a smile on my face and helps me keep going so those are the things that i'm particularly grateful for today that's that's great you actually i, I do have one more question um because you said walking around lakeside I've seen you run around Lakeside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pass and I'm like, there's our delegate. Um, McShin has a run club and we meet on Wednesdays in the afternoons and we you yeah. shake it and said, no, you're in. <laughs> Clearly I'm not part of that club. Um, Harrison's uh, run with a few times, but uh, Bob and uh, Jesse has too. Matt uh, here has done that. You're, you're welcome to run. I can get you the information. We'd love to have you. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, text it to me. You know, it's okay. funny. I was running um, a couple days ago, and 
and I'm walking and this guy, we come to the corner and, and he, he takes out his earphones and we wave and he, and he looks at me, he goes, it's the damnedest thing. He goes, we can't be anywhere or talk to anybody, but I've seen more people in this neighborhood in the last month than I have in the last year. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. That's, you know, we, Harrison and I are housemates and uh, well, there's been a lot of people walking. We're, we're, we're not in your district. We're over in Willett's district. Um, but uh, <laughs> we've seen a lot of people walking around the neighborhood. It's beautiful, yeah. you know. Walking backwards too. That one lady who walks backwards is a little weird, but <laughs> interesting. I haven't seen that. Um, Skylar, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you, Baxter, um, <laughs> for joining us. And uh, I hope all your kids are still doing okay back there. All three of them. Are they home with you now? Not with me right now. So. No. so. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to Harrison, my uh, co-host over here, and to Todd, my forever producer. Um, thank you all. I do want to do a shout out for Saturday um, for getting the herd after hours. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, he was a dog. I got Harrison. So. Um, shout out. This Saturday, is it Saturday, right? Yeah, Saturday night at 9. Uh, John has, um, oh, you asked me, he just threw me on the spot. It's okay, no, I got this. He's, he's got um, Dan Schneider. Dan Schneider is the prototagonist in the documentary on Netflix, called, uh, the documentary called The, um, the, the Pharmacist. The Pharmacist. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, if you haven't watched it, definitely watch that. I know you've been watching Babylon Berlin, so if you haven't watched that, um, watch that. Uh, also, and, and this might be more interesting, too. Um, he's got Miss America with him. So he's going to have Miss America and Dan Schneider. It should be a really good show. Um, and if you want to tune in or if you want to ask some questions online, you know, John's, you know, Johnny's a character. Oh, so <laughs> please tune in um, with that. Thank you again. And uh, tomorrow, our guests actually uh, tune in tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, I've got David, uh, David Aldridge uh, as my guest. Yeah. So. Please tune in for that, and we'll see you later. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Bye.